Hey, it's Ken Finnan from Capital Advantage Tutoring, and it's my job to get you past the SIE exam. I've been doing this for 12 years. I've been in the business since 1989, and I can explain everything to you in a normal English blue-collar manner, if you want to talk about it. <clears throat> Why do I sound like a salesman? I don't know. So I've this current playlist, this series, if you want to call it, let's get into this. First thing we're talking about is different types of investment companies. So what you should do is before you watch this, go watch my How to Pass the Series 6 video. I'll try to put it up here. If I can do it, it's going to work up here. But who knows if I'm technically savvy enough to get it to land there. Okay. Now, after you do that, we can talk about other types of investment companies that are covered by the Investment Company Act of 1940. So we have ETFs, exchange-traded funds. What they do is they have a basket of securities, like it's like a basket, like the whole mutual fund thing. We have all the stocks in there, and it's tracking an index. So what they do is they put it in at the same percentage that the S&P has it. So if the S&P 500 has 500 stocks in it, there's 500 stocks in this at the same percentage that the S&P 500 has them, because they're not all the same. They're weighted. The cubes, the triple cubes are NASDAQ, and the diamonds, the DIA, are for the Dow Jones, which is 30 stocks. So, But here's the difference. In a mutual fund, if you remember, they, the actual manager buys and sells, trying to add alpha, and try to like alpha is trying to do better than expected, okay? So these are not, these ETFs, they're passively managed, which means that there's not a person or man or woman trying to actively trade it. What they're doing is they're just rebalancing it. So let's say you have a stock that is like, say you have a portfolio of stocks, 100 stocks, and each is 1% each. But one of them skyrockets up, like Zoom goes crazy, okay? It's now going to be more expensive, and it's going to be a heavier percentage of the ETF. So they'll rebalance it every quarter to sell some of those shares and bring up some of the other ones to make it a little bit better, to make them back to the 1%. The good thing about an ETF, too, is if you actually click on the holdings, you can see the percentages that they are going for. Now, it doesn't mean it's exactly what it is at the time you look at it. But when they, that's the goal is they want like 1% Apple, 1% Intel, 1% this, 1% that, whatever it is. And if S&P 500, it's obviously less than 1%, you know, it's like a you know 20th of a percent. But that's where we are, okay? So passive is they rebalance. Active is like mutual funds and closed-end funds where they're tr they have an active manager trying to beat the market with the higher fees. So that's the other thing. In ETF, since you're only rebalancing, there are lower fees. They have less fees. Their management fees are way less, 100% less, okay? Not 100% less, just definitely less, okay? Um, there's no sales charges or anything because here's the deal. Remember sales charge? When you buy a mutual fund, you pay the NAV plus a sales charge. An ETF is not that. An ETF, they buy it, they package it, and then list it on the exchange. And you buy it like it's a stock. So if you want to buy it, it will move with the indexes and it will move with the NAV a little bit because it does have an NAV. But that's not what you pay. You're going to pay the market price. So this goes listed on the exchange. This is iced tea. I'm trying to say from the Diet Coke. It's been now um, three weeks and I don't notice a difference. So um, with an ETF, it's passively managed. Here's the portfolio in here that they're going to passively manage. And if you want to buy this, it's going to be bought on the exchange. So you have to buy it from another investor. So you have to find someone else who owns it, who wants to sell it. Or if you want to sell yours, you have to sell it to someone who wants to buy it. There's no investment company. They're not being redeemed. They're bought and sold. And you just like a stock, you buy it at the ask, 
you sell it at the bid, and you pay a commission or a markup markdown. So that's the thing. You're paying a commission. When you buy and sell this, you're paying a commission when you buy it, not a sales charge. And the mutual fund company doesn't get that money. That's to the broker-dealer who executed the trade for you. Now, the other thing is we have a regular ETF that goes with the index. Then we have an inverse where they kind of short everything in a way. So what happens is as the index goes up, it goes down. So if you have an inverse ETF on the S&P 500, the market goes up 10, it's going to go down 10. It's like opposite. It's like shorting it with less risk because, remember, if, you, if you're short stock, you have unlimited risk. So here with an ETF, you buy an inverse as you can basically benefit from the market going down because you'll go up, but you only have the risk of what you paid. You don't have unlimited risk, which is awesome. Okay. Then we have leverage, which means if the market, say we have a 2X or a 3X. So if you have a 2X or 200%, 2X, 200%, it's going to move twice as much as the market. So if you have an ETF, a 2X ETF, and it might say it's at one of the spiders, if the market goes up 10%, we'll go up 20. The market, If we have a 3X, the market goes up 10, we'll go up 30. The market goes up 20, we'll go up 60. The market goes up 5, we'll go up 15. Ah, but here's the bad part. If it goes down five, you're going to go down 15. If it goes down 20, you're going to go down 60. That's a 3X, okay? So they're great. If, if you the market's going your way, you can make a lot of money. But if it goes bad, you can lose it very quickly. That's why they're not for long-term investing. I'm stupid enough to do that with my tech stocks but because they go up. But I'm not telling you to do that. That's not advice at all. I promise you, not advice. Do not follow my advice at all. I am a moron with this. Basically, how can you know when a stock hits its high? I buy it at the high, so it's always going to go down. But anyway, so a leveraged ETF goes up and down in a multitude of what the index does. So it's better for day trading than it is for long-term investing. Regular ETFs are awesome for long-term investing because the fees are lower. They don't really pay dividends. So it's very tax efficient. Okay, So regular ETFs are good for long-term. Inverse and leveraged are not. Just an add-on, they can do leveraged inverse, which means if you have a 2x inverse and the market goes up 10, you're going to go down 20. You go the opposite and more. Super risky. Okay? Good. I like that. Okay. Inverse, leverage, inverse, leverage, ETFs. All inverse and leverage are considered short-term. They're more for day trading, not for long-term. Okay. ETNs. Okay. So remember, an ETN, ETN is an exchange-traded note. It's very similar to an ETF. As far as investing in it, it has all the features. Like you can have an inverse, you can have a leverage, you can do all that. But it's not an equity. ETF is an equity. ETN is a note, so it's a bond. So it's all trades and inverse and leverage and all that. But here's the thing. It's like a bond. So credit risk is a thing. Almost every time you're going to get a question on what's the biggest risk on an ETN or an ELN, equity link note, it's credit risk. Okay, Because it's still a bond. It's a weird bond, but like a bank will issue this and say, oh, Give us 50 bucks, and at the end of 30 years, we'll give you your $50 back, hopefully, plus or minus whatever the index we're tracking is. So like I have one that's based on, what is it based on? All the tech stocks, FANGs, okay? So I buy it at 50, say. If all the FANG stocks as an index go up by 10%, I go up 10%. The stock does. I don't get any money. So if I want to hold this till the end, I would get my 50 bucks back, plus whatever this these indexes up or down over that same period of time. So the whole point of this is that it's like a debt, but it can track like a very narrow index or a wide index or a group of stocks or like a small group of stocks. 
But here's the deal. You get no money during the life of it. Most bonds, a lot of bonds pay you every six months. This pays you not at all until the end. So it is not for income. It is for trading. And most of the time, it's over short. Again, it's the ETN can be for longer term, but anything leverage or inverse is going to be short term. And again, they are not really heavy feed. Okay. So a lot of them trade based on the benchmark and some of them, um, some of them are indexed or leveraged against it. Okay. That works. A hedge fund. Okay. So a couple of things. Hedge funds are not for your retail investors because if you ever watch billions, it's risky stuff. So most of the, think about this, a hedge fund is very much like an unregulated or unregistered mutual fund in a way. You buy into it and you're buying a package and the ma and the manager of the fund is trying to buy and sell securities, actively managing it, trying to beat the market or to reduce risk or whatever it is based on the hedge fund. But they but it, what it, there's a couple of things with it. One, they do riskier securities, but they do have they do hedge their bets. That's why they call the hedge fund. They hedge in alternative ways, like maybe if they go, oh, look, if I buy Coke. But then I buy a bottling company or a trucking company. Maybe they offset each other. So they do alternative methods of hedging. But sometimes they buy illiquid securities a lot of times. So you can't get in and out. Unlike a mutual fund, where if you want in and out, just get out. It doesn't matter. Okay. So like a mutual fund, in, out, in, out, nobody cares. It's all good. Okay. Every day. You're not supposed to do it all the time, but you can get out anytime you want with the mutual fund. Hedge fund. Usually it's like you have to, you can get out like once a quarter. Like if you say, I want to sell now, it could be two months before they let you out. Or they can say, no, if you guys watch a big short, everyone wanted to pull out of that fund. And he basically said no and started a rip roar, but he said no, but he was right. Okay. They're unregistered. They're unregistered with the SEC. They're mostly for um, accredited investors because they kind of are private. They do a private placement. They're very, they're very tightly held. And they're illiquid, which means you cannot, okay? They can't, you cannot get out of it very quickly. And in reality, like a mutual fund has to put their NAV on the public every day. Hedge funds do not, okay? Now, now the other thing is hedge funds can charge you whatever they want to, to get in. So a lot of times what they'll do, my dog, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll charge you 2% of the um, assets and 20% of the growth. They call it a two and 20. So basically, they'll charge a 2% management fee. Like say you put in 10 grand, they're charging you 200 bucks a year plus 20% of the profits. So that good, two and 20. It's going more toward one in 10 now with the smaller ones, but it is what it is, okay. Now, another type of head fund is a PE fund. A PE fund is one that basically they try, um, they're trying to raise capital for small businesses. So what they do is a PE, is, and think of PE and VC. Private equity and venture capitalists. Those are like the little companies, big now, that buy the small companies and help them bring bring them public. But they're buying like companies that are like in trouble or need help, need a quick funding to get up and to get up and running. And they have an exit strategy. But again, they're unregulated like a hedge fund and they're owned and they're illiquid. They're usually done as a private placement, which means you have to be accredited, normally accredited only. Okay. And again, they're unregistered. So hedge funds are unregulated mutual funds. Private equity and VC are types of hedge funds in a way that invest in small and medium-sized companies. REITs, baby, we got to go with REITs now. Real Estate Investment Trust. They are not under the Investment Company Act of 1940. Remember that they are not 
under the Investment Company Act of 1940, they are regulated by the Act of 33 for the issuing and the 34 for the trading. It's basically a way to invest in real estate without buying one single property, okay? So it's basically diversified, okay? So here's it. Here's what we have. We have a package that has a bunch of real estate in it, and you're buying this, very much like a closed-end fund, that there's an active manager buying and selling properties or or maybe if it's a mortgage REIT, you know, making money off the mortgages or an equity REIT, buying and flipping and getting income and rent from the property, stuff like that. Maybe they own a shopping mall. But the reason you buy a REIT is for diversification. So instead of you buying one shopping mall, and if that doesn't do well, you're screwed. But this way you buy a REIT and it owns maybe 50 or 100 shopping malls. So even if one doesn't do well, you got the other 49 that are doing well. And they're liquid. Like if you buy a shopping mall, it could take you months to buy it and then months to sell it. Where if we have a, um, if you buy a REIT, you buy in and maybe two hours later you want out, hey, get out. It's it's so easy. It's liquid, okay? Especially exchange traded. So if you ever see the word exchange traded, know that that means liquid on these tests, okay? So if you see non-listed REIT, it's still pretty liquid, but it's not as liquid as an exchange traded one, okay? Good. Now, let's move on. They have to do most of their business with real estate, okay? Now, they are liquid. Here's the one thing about it, though. So um, attack the REITs. So a normal C corporation, regular, like if you buy IBM, they make money, they pay taxes on it, and then you then they distribute a dividend, and then you pay taxes on it, so it's double taxed. REITs and mutual funds have this conduit theory where if they pass through 90% of their net income, 90% of their net income to the investors, they only pay tax on the 10. So you're getting the income before it's been taxed. So you're getting more money generally that way, and you don't get double tax. But what they don't do is they don't allow for a qualified dividend. Like if you buy a regular company and you get a dividend, if you've owned it for 60 days and held it for 60 days, they lower the tax bracket called the qualified dividend. They lower it to like 15 or 20%. That doesn't happen here. With a REIT, it's always going to be at your ordinary income. I hope that helps a little bit. Okay. So remember, REITs pass through the gains. Limited partnerships, which are the one they're going to compare it to is a RELP, a real estate limited partnership is a direct participation program, a limited partner, which we're going to talk about in maybe five or six minutes, that they pass through everything. So REITs pass through gains, limited partnerships pass through gains and losses. That's a big one, okay? So for the dividends, if they pass through 90% of their income, then it comes to you untaxed, which is better for you. So when I buy a REIT, I'm buying it for liquidity, diversification, and to get rental income. It's like owning property. It's like owning real estate without actually having to go through the owning the real estate. <coughs> okay, DPPs. DPP is like another word for a limited partnership. A limited partnership is a limited partnership, okay? It is an absolute partnership, which means you have to have one limited partner and one general partner, one of each at least. You can't have two GPs. Two LPs, it has to be an LP and a GP. The LP is a passive investor who just drops cash. The GP actually runs it. They have to have at least some ownership, like 1% minimum, and they can't compete. So if you're the GP of a certain type of limited partnership, you can't be the GP of multiple ones. You have to be of one, okay? Limited partners, so you're just an investor. You're just dropping cash and you're not getting involved in running the company at all. You're not making any decisions. I mean, you can fire the GP if he's really bad or she's really bad, but that's about the, the limit of what you can do. So a limited partner 
of a limited partnership, they only have the risk up to what they invest because all they're doing is dropping cash and hoping you do well. The general partner has unlimited liability where they can come after them for a lot more, okay? Now, the thing about a limited partnership is, unlike the REIT or the corporations, which pass through some of it, limited partnerships do not pay any taxes. All of the money passes through. All of the money passes through the partnership into the partner's thing. So if I make 10 grand, I'm the GP, you guys are the LP, and we're 50% owners. If I make 10 grand, you're going to get five grand, I'm going to get five grand. A partnership actually doesn't pay any taxes. Okay? We okay with that? I think that should help. Okay, so now, you hear my dogs in the background? It's great. Okay, so now, the reason you buy into a limited partnership is for the limited liability and, again, to diversify all different things. They can have a real estate limited partnership, which all the money, they do the same thing as a REIT, except for all of the money gets passed through to the investors, plus all the losses. And you think, wait, why would I want losses? Well, you're not actually owing money. It's a loss. It's considered a write-off, Okay. So a loss and a write-off are very similar. So write-offs are what they call losses are ways to offset your income. It reduces what you owe. So if you make 10 grand and it costs you $1,000 to do it, whether it's through rent or depreciation or depletion, all those things will cover for the top off. Those are write-offs, like maybe a salary. You got to write it off or advertising. That reduces what you pay taxes on. So if you make 10 grand, and you pay $1,000 to do something to earn that 10 grand, you want to pay tax on the nine. So that's where the advantage is, is that you may have enough write-offs where you pay very little income. So that's the purpose of a limited partnership is that you're investing money and you're going to get all the income, your portion of it, plus the losses or write-offs. That's what helps you. Okay. So here's the problem with owning a limited partnership. You don't really have any control. You just put money in and you're hoping they do a good job. Illiquidity. So I love that word. Illiquidity. They're not liquid. You want in, you have to get in, and the partnership has to let you, the GP has to allow you in. And then if you want out, it's not going to be able to be sold out either because they have to find someone who can buy your shares who they accept. So it makes it a little harder. The one thing is, is that the, this is good for taxes, but remember that you're taking care of certain benefits. You're, you're actually taking advantage of benefits of having a partnership, but it makes your tax return more complicated. So if you don't do it right, then there could be problems or if they take too many deductions, then you may have to pay more taxes. Like there's a thing called recapture. It's probably more of a seven thing. But recapture is if you take a deduction and pay less taxes, and then the IRS later determines that, oh, hey, you actually owe some of that money, they can recapture some of that taxes and make you owe it. Okay. The other one is a call. So what happens is they can, you're a partner in this firm. Okay. So if they need money, they're going to ask you for the money. Okay. So if you buy a REIT or a stock or anything else, if they need more money, they don't get it from you. They have to raise it somewhere else or do something. Here, you're a partner. And you get what they call a capital call where they can come in and ask you to come up with more money. If you don't, you may lose some of your ownership in a project because that you agree to that, that you'd be willing to take a capital call. And that has to come into play when you're re recommending as a representative, recommending a limited partnership that you have to make sure that they can handle one, losing their money, two, the illiquidity, and three, that they may have enough, they may get a capital call, can they afford that? So again, back to this, GP runs it, has unlimited risk, they can go after them personally. Limited partners can only be gone after, after they have nothing to do with it, and they can only come after their money, the money that they put in. So um, GP, day-to-day -day manager, must have at least a 1% interest, 
They have a fiduciary responsibility toward taking care of the project and the limited partnership, but they are last paid in liquidation. So when a limited partnership goes out, say it goes, um, what the hell am I going to say? When it goes out of business, which is not the reason you would ever invest in anything, it goes secured, unsecured, slash general, limited, general. So secured, unsecured, limited, general. So when they pay off, they pay the secured creditors first, then the unsecured, considered the general creditors, second, then the limited, then the GP. That's the general partner. The limited partner, they just put in their money and they have limited liability. They put in the money, that's a contributor of capital. They have the right to lend to the partnership. You can inspect the books and records and they can invest in other partnerships because you're just a limited partner. Now, if you start getting involved in negotiating contracts or hire or fire employees or start using your name as part of the partnership, meaning that you're actually being involved in running the partnership, you could lose your limited status and they may make you jump over to GP. So limited partnerships can offer one of two ways. Either they can do public, which they use an underwriter and they register the SEC, or they do a private placement, which is a Reg D, which is exempt from the registration acts of, of 33. So Reg D, they go for accredited investors. That's when the limited partnership goes directly to the investors. And most of them have to be accredited. There's some exceptions. And, and they don't register with the SEC, where the public one, where you're raising money publicly, you're going to use an underwriter and register with the SEC. And there's a lot of prospectuses and all that other crap. So in the tax treatment, the income that you receive from a limited partnership is considered passive. Passive is fine. You get money passively. You're not really involved in doing it. So it's still taxed as ordinary income, but any passive losses can only be used to write off passive gains. That's a tax thing that may come up later, but just know passive losses can be used to offset passive gains. Like if you make 10 grand trading, if you make 10 grand passive and then you lose five grand passive, then you only pay taxes on five. But if you lose five grand passes, passive and make 10 grand trading, they can't offset each other. They just don't. Passive stays in its own little bubble. Um, Passive income is usually either real property, like actual real estate investing, direct investment in real estate, or limited partnerships. That's passive income. <clears throat> so we have different types of limited partnerships, okay? So we have a real estate limited partnership called a RELP, where they invest in real estate. They can either invest in raw land, which is very speculative. Um, not a lot of deductions on that because you can't depreciate raw land. New construction is where they're building property on land, or they can buy existing properties and flip them out or rent them or whatever it is. Another one is government-assisted housing. You don't have to go through the whole thing in every little detail for this exam. Just understand the difference is that real estate limited partnerships is very much like a REIT in what they do, but the money's different. REITs pass through 90% of their income, none of the losses, and they're liquid. Real estate limited partnerships pass through all the income plus all the losses, write-offs, and they're not liquid at all. Then we have oil and gas. We have three types. Well, they say four, but I'll go that. So oil and gas is where they're trying to find oil and sell it. So there's exploratory, also known as wildcatting, where they're drilling and they're looking for oil and all that. So it's high risk, high reward. Then we have developmental. Basically, what we're doing is we're either drilling in places that already have oil, like exploratory finds oil in this property. So then the developmental asks if they can drill there too, or they look for rights, or they take over the exploratory one. So exploratory finds oil, they have the big gusher, you see in the movies, they cap it, and then the developmental comes in and buys that drill, buys the oil hole, okay, if you want to call it oil well. Um, so it's a little less risky, a little less reward. 
Then we have a balance, which basically both exploratory and developmental. Like maybe they go, oh, we're going to explore. And then once we do it, we'll start working it into an, an income producing thing. So again, exploratory we drill, developmental, we take one that found oil and turn it into an income producing drilling place. Then income is strictly just income. Basically, they take an already working well and they just sell the oil. Low risk, low reward. Okay. So really the income is you're just you're selling oil and it's it's already a proven oil well. Okay. So before you recommend a limited partnership, there are a couple of things you have to do. One is you have to certify that you have let them know about all the facts. And here are the couple of things. One, you have to make sure that they understand that it's not very liquid. Two, you have to make sure that they can handle the loss and they have enough net worth to handle a potential loss of their entire investment. Those are rules. If you have a discretionary account, what do we know about discretionary accounts? That means you can make investments for your customer without telling them ahead of time. If you are going to put them into a limited partnership because there's a capital call and there's a liquidity thing, you do, that's the one of the two things, one of the few things you cannot put them in without their written permission. So if, I, if you have my account and you want to put me in a limited partnership, you need to get my permission before you put it in in writing. Remember, FINRA's line is, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. <clears throat> okay, so let's do the real quick conclusion. If you have an ETF, does it trade? Yes. Is it subject to the active 40? Yes. Are they marginable? Yes. ETNs, remember, that's like a debt. Are they traded? Yes. Are they subject to active 40? No, because it's a bond. Are they marginable? Yes. Hedge funds, are do they trade? No. Are they subject to the active 40? No. And are they marginable? No, because they're super secret, okay? PE funds, the same thing. PE, VC, and hedge funds are all the same thing. There's no trading. They're not subject. They're usually unregistered, and they're not marginable. REITs trade on the market for the most part. They are not under the Investment Company Act of 40, and you can margin them for the most part. DPs, are, is there a limit? Is there secondary market trading? A little bit, not very liquid, but there is. Are they subject to the Act of 40? No. And are they marginal? No. <clears throat> so that's the end of that chapter. I hope you liked what I did. I'm up to chapter nine. I'm almost halfway through the book. Woo! If you like what I'm doing, please hit like, subscribe, and share this shit. I am dropping gold. Y'all have a good day, and I will see you on Tuesday next time.